welcome to Note Doctors. My name is Paul. My name is Jen. My name is Ben. And we are your hosts. We are all university music theory instructors who are passionate about music theory and music theory instruction. In this podcast, we will be talking about all things theory with some of the best music theory teachers in the country. If you want to know more about music theory and the most effective and innovative ways to teach it, this is the podcast for you. Hello and welcome back to Note Doctors, the music theory and pedagogy podcast. So it has been a minute since we've released an episode. <laughs> um, I mean, we've, we, we have real jobs. I think maybe we need to <laughs> let people know that, you know, we don't just make podcasts. In fact, we don't even make money, actually. We lose money on this endeavor. <laughs> that's a true story. <laughs> but that's okay. You know, we're still looking for a venture capitalist to just <laughs> throw a bunch of money at us. Um, but we've been, you know, had some things going on and just, you know, time went away, got away from us. But uh, we are back with uh, some more exciting episodes. And so our episode today is um, a good friend from the DFW area, right? So Dallas, Fort Worth, Texas. And so that's uh, Dr. Amy Hatch. And so she is going to be talking to us about um, her teaching and her kind of first year journey at her current position and kind of the ways that she's been able to incorporate some really innovative um, teaching and pedagogical ideas into her classroom. So you are really going to learn something and get some really cool ideas to hopefully take away to in- incorporate into your own theory classes um, as you listen to her uh, speak. Uh, So before we get into the conversation, though, let's get her bio. So, Ben, I think uh, you've got that pulled up. Sure. Dr. Amy Hatch is Assistant Professor of Instruction in Music Theory at the University of Texas at Arlington. She teaches the undergraduate theory and ear training sequences, as well as graduate-level post-tonal analysis 20th Century Form and Technique, and Music Theory Pedagogy. She serves on the Curriculum and Noon Recital slash Enrichment Hour committees and is a faculty liaison for the Music Department's Student Advisory Council. She has recently become a certified peer observer for UTA and obtained certification from the Association of College and University Educators, also known as AQ. And I'll add on that Amy was an absolutely fantastic TA for me. I'm so proud of her teaching and all of her work that she's done um, at UTA. I became like a certified group exercise instructor in 2019, is what I just mentioned earlier. You have visual learners, you have audio learners, you have kinesthetic, and when we're doing exercises for this class, it's all pre-choreographed, so I have to learn the choreography. I have to do it with them, I have to give verbal cues, and I have to show them what I'm doing. I show them the wrong way, which is like error detection, and I show them the right way to do it. If we're doing a deadlift, you don't want to hunch your shoulders over and round out your back. You want to keep the shoulders back and you want to stay nice and straight. So that's those are kind of the verbal cues, which on a podcast, you can only get the verbal cues. But hopefully you're able to picture that, right? Because of the verbal cues. And that's where I got most of my theory pedagogy from. Because we move in music, we talk in music, we sing, we play things. Um, and we listen to things. It's very similar to the exercise industry. 
So today we are so happy to have Dr. Amy Hatch on the podcast uh, to talk a bit about her experience um, in her first year as a as a full time tenure track faculty member. Um, this has been a little bit of a theme for us um, this spring. And so before we though we dive into um, our conversation, we always like to ask our guests a little bit about how they got into music theory. And so was it a children's storybook or anything like that <laughs> that got you in to music theory or anything like that? I, I was trying to think of a of a uh, of a, a, a kid's book that could easily be adapted to music yeah. theory, but I'm, I can't think of one off the top of my head other than the two sews in a row. That's my future child children's book, by the way, which is which is about the credential six four. Because um, there's two sews in the base. Every yeah. kid needs to know when they hear two sews in a row, credential six four. Um, but future future work maybe when i get a sabbatical sometime i'll write that uh but amy how did you find yourself as a music theorist well um i guess it all started in undergrad i was going back and forth between music ed and a ba and it's really when i figured out hey i really like doing music theory um there's got to be a way for me to be able to teach this, right? So I was a music ed major at my school, Texas State, <laughs> and I just, I went into my upper level review and they said, you know, I don't really see you as a band director. I said, well, I don't want to be a band director. I want to be a music theorist. And that's when that turned into, well, I really need to look at these degree plans and figure out what is going to get me there. And so I turned out to be a BA. I graduated with a BA because we didn't have a music theory degree. And um, my mentor, Dr. Cynthia Gonzalez, is the one that kind of helped keep me going. And she, um, I continued into a master's program there, and she ended up being my thesis advisor. So really, it was I was taking her theory and ear training one and two classes, and just seeing how methodical she was. And I'm a very organized person. It just really helped bring me into that realm. <laughs> Uh, we love Cynthia Gonzalez here. Every, everyone loves Cynthia Gonzalez, actually. It's true. Yeah? Oh, yeah. It's true. It's great. Very true. So you are in your first year at UT Arlington, right? And mm -hmm. um, they have this very unique kind of first-year orientation that you all go through, all of the new faculty. Is that right? Right. It's called the Faculty Development Series at UTA. It really starts on the first day with orientation. So you go to orientation, you're put with these people as a cohort. I think we're cohort 22F or something like that. And <laughs> we continue together through our first year, second year, and third year. We have oh, meetings wow. monthly. Um, we don't have to attend them. I've missed a few of them because they usually occur during times when I have music faculty meetings and student adco meetings. So it's not required, but it's a good way to just go check in all of those workshops are taught by faculty members that are faculty members within the university, but also who work for faculty affairs. So we get to know a lot of people outside of the music department. I even made a friend in chemistry and we still oh, need great. to have lunch. Yeah, but we just really clicked right away and he has a different kind of analytical brain. So it'd be interesting for us to meet up and chat sometime, <laughs> but it's a great way to meet people outside of the department. That's what I really liked about it. Yeah, that's really great. Yeah. And they kind of, as part of that, you do sort of like online classes kind of thing. Is that right? So the online classes is a separate thing. Um, it's called um, AQ, which is 
I already forgot. We'll have to take that out. <laughs> it's short. <laughs> it's short for something that's long. I can never remember the name of it. Um, <laughs> but it's a it's a course that we put about fifty hours into, and every week they. The deadlines are soft, but they have the deadlines there so we can implement something new every single week. And that could be anywhere from do a syllabus reconnaissance or do um, do an icebreaker, do an end of the class activity. So little things like that that we implement. So we end up having about 25 total modules. So that's about 25 weeks worth of material. It wow. starts in August and it ends in April. I was lucky I got ahead during spring break. I did all of my modules and I've worked my reflections recently and I actually finished my accreditation um, this week. So I'm done. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. It was a lot of work. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I didn't realize it was so many hours, but it does sound like that it's something that's very practical and that you can directly apply into your teaching. So um, maybe you can give us some ideas on some things for those of us that didn't <laughs> do all the modules but are just listening to a podcast. Uh, yeah. What are some things that we could take away from that? And maybe, you know, maybe something I could right. do in theory too next week or something. Right. So um, a lot of them applied to music. Some of them were a little challenging to apply to music. The ones that I found the most easy was actually one of the first modules, which was how you start your first day of class. Mm -hmm. So that includes like a syllabus reconnaissance that I mentioned. Um, It can be like a materials quiz. Those are two things that I did on the first day of class. I did it last semester and I felt it was more successful this semester because I had a more confidence this semester. The first time I did it, of course, I was a little nervous, like, how is this going to go? But when I did it um, this semester, I feel like they really interacted with me. The students really interacted. So with the reconnaissance, we go in there and instead of just going point by point through the syllabus, we would say, I'd write up on the board, okay, here's a star, put a star next to five things that you think are important put an explanation mark next to things that you're excited about, maybe two or three things, and put a question mark next to something that you want to know more about or you have a question about. So it's like a little visual aid for them to go through the syllabus, find what's important to them, find what they don't understand. And instead of me going point by point through it, we can just come back together at the end of it. So what I have them do, I give them like five minutes by themselves to do that. And then I say, go pair up with your neighbor, find, um, compare the things that you found were interesting, because sometimes they'd have different interests. Sometimes they'd have different things that they'd choose to be important things. So I'd have them pair up and talk about it. And then we'll come together as a whole class. And I'm like, okay, so what are some important things that you found in the syllabus? And they would tell me. One of the most successful times that I had with it this semester was in my theory four class. So I had a student last semester in my ear training class, never turned in any homework at all. And we've never had students like that before. I'm just kidding. I know. I know. And I'm thinking, how can I fix this? I didn't do the syllabus reconnaissance in that ear training class that he was in. So this semester he comes in and 
um, have them go through the important things. And he's the first one to raise his hand. I said, yes, what's important? He says, homework. I said, yes, homework is important. <laughs> so it's, it's like a verbal contract for them to tell me this is what's important for your class. And this is what I got to do to be successful. You know, yeah. like homework is such and such percentage of my grade. If I say it's 40 percent, if I don't do any of my homework, I'm going to end up with a 60 at most, which is already failing for music, you know? Mm -hmm. Yep. So I that's that really, really interesting. Cool. It kind of reminds me of actually a practice that my father-in-law does in the medical field, which is when people have like health goals, not that those are the same as music theory goals, like by all means, health is more important <laughs> than music theory. But he said it means more if you ask someone to set their own health goals instead of just your doctor telling you, you know what? You need to eat your vegetables. You need to go out and do your cardio. If the person actually makes the list of what's important to you, there's a lot more ownership of that activity. And I think that part, maybe we could take a lesson from in music theory. And it sounds like, it sounds like you have. Definitely. And you know what? I told them when I was able to take that and explain a little bit, elaborate more on it, I said, you know what? A lot of you will take it as all or nothing. Don't take it as all or nothing. Like, oh, I missed a homework assignment. I'm not going to do the rest for the rest of the semester. <laughs> like, that's what happens, right? It is. So yeah. uh -huh. I told them. I said, don't take it like that. If you miss one, it's not going to destroy your grade. Not doing any of them is going to destroy your grade, but at least do some of them. And so I right. said, don't take it this way. I said, if you miss some, that's fine, but try to do some. The more you do, the more points you're going to earn towards your final grade. Yeah. Yeah, that's really good. I've done a syllabus quiz for years, but I like this idea much better. I prefer also to not just like read through it like a bullet mm -hmm. point. And especially my university has um, like about two pages of pre-done stuff that must be in the syllabus. And it's we have no like I can't delete it if I want to. I would not want to. It's mostly good <laughs> stuff. But, uh, you know, I, I could not I could not change it or alter it in any way. So they're hearing those things in every single class. Um but yeah, I like the idea of saying, you know, find the important things rather than me trying to like give them a quiz question that forces them to find the things I think that they should know. And they often get it wrong is the crazy part. I always give yeah. them unlimited tries on the quiz. It's an online quiz and they can take it as many times as they want. And it shocks me how many students have to take it like four and five times for something where the material they are reading it right in front of them. So yeah, I think that's really good. Yeah. Does does creating this re reconnaissance kind of assignment or, or activity then make you go back and change how maybe the syllabus is worded or structured? Like, I, mm. I wonder if it, there's this kind of this reflexive relationship. Like, it's not just so okay, I just create the syllabus and then, you know, the students should be able to find the things that are important or or things like that. But then do you then think about, well, how should I craft this syllabus so that those important things are brought up or the things that they need to know are clearly uh, presented is it kind of does it influence the way that you then create your syllabus yeah so i've only done it, done it for two semesters so far but i do find that i i know what they're finding important what they're looking at they definitely look at the course schedule they look at attendance they look at grades how the grades are weighted and i find that um, I can add things in there 
that had been bothering me from the previous semester. Like this semester, I added in um, my friend, Dr. Elise Kaler. She's a composition professor here. She has a little blurb in her syllabus about how to craft a good email to your professors. And mm-hmm. it's very general. And so I was dealing with that last semester. <laughs> it was just bad. I'd get, hi, Professor Amy. And I'm like, what is this? Where is this coming from? <laughs> it was off the wall. And then stuff like, it was like they're texting me, like, hey, what did I miss today? Like, this isn't an email. So I, I borrowed that from her. I put that in my syllabus this semester. And during the reconnaissance, they brought that up. They said, oh, we should know how to address you in an email. I said, yes, exactly. Mm-hmm. So now they're reinforcing that. And I haven't had any problems this semester. It's been amazing. Yeah. Yeah. It's I've done a great. similar thing. And that, that, that does work. I've been so surprised how better the emails are if you just kind of draw attention to it and let them know kind of what is expected. Now, um, I was going to ask another question about the syllabus and I just lost it. Oh, um, have you had to deal with less um, um, questions about things that are answered in the syllabus? So, you know, students respond, like you email you like 10 weeks in. So is there extra credit or things like that? Or they miss a test and they don't, they don't understand why you can't just give a retake. Have, they, um, have you had to deal with less um, issues like that? Yeah, I haven't had any of those kind of emails. Whoa. It's insane. That's amazing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. Anything we can do they to know reduce a number of emails, I think I would have to be in favor of that. I know. Most of my emails are really just, hey, I can't make it today, blah, blah, blah. Like, they mm-hmm. understand that. they want. They, I told them in the syllabus, you know, be communicative with me. Let me know what's going on. We can work something out. So mm-hmm. they do. They email me about not being in class. So maybe uh, one thing that people might be interested to, to discuss here is some of the unexpected benefits that you have. You know, sometimes we sign up for a professional development or a particular training, um, like we're a Hispanic-serving institution at UND, and I signed up for a, a professional development on it. And there were some things that I had no idea that I was going to benefit from having done that training. So from your training at, at UTA, what are some of the things that you walked in expecting one thing, but then you came out knowing this really cool part or had this cool unexpected uh, benefit? Yeah. Um, when I hear that question, it actually just brings me back to AQ again. I guess it's still really fresh in my mind, but the unexpected benefit from taking that course was confidence in the classroom. So, I mean, yeah, I know the material and I've taught these classes several times, but I have that confidence of being able to implement something new whenever I want. Like if something, some idea comes to me when I'm driving home, then I can implement that idea the next day and like quickly. Um, last week I thought, oh, I can, um, I can teach um, set theory by just getting some D&D dice that are 12 sided and roll them on the dot cam and then we can practice normal order that way. So I did it, Amazon Prime, there you go. I've already been doing it in class. So it gives me the confidence to try new things. And if something doesn't work out, my students are really flexible with me. We laugh about it, we move on. Yeah, but that. definitely confidence has very much been an issue, or very, not an issue, but it's definitely helped me out um, in the classroom. That's one yeah. thing that I'm trying to instill in my TFs, you know, just graduate teachers is, you know, sometimes they're so hesitant to, like, 
change a lesson or like a little guideline that you know is made up either by me or one of their colleagues or from a previous year and I always think no if you're not you know if you're not moving forward you're kind of moving backwards in a certain way you know you should always be rethinking it and trying to make it better and change whether it's your practices or your the way your lesson is structured or the content of your lesson or the takeaways you know what are the true takeaways of this lesson that's one thing I've thought a lot about is sometimes the takeaways are more of the content versus like really a truly a synthesis level question or truly a synthesis level Mm -hmm. takeaway and really thinking about those things as you redesign um, lesson by lesson so so yeah that's awesome yeah that's something that I've built on um, this semester as well just um i'm thinking like for my tests like i give the tests back and i just stand there and say do you have any questions and i thought what more could i do to make this better and so like Mm. that program has helped me kind of get a better my brain my brain just like constantly going now like what can i do to make this better what can i do to improve that so now i do like i print out the test again and i go through everybody's tests i only have like maybe 30 students for my 32 class. Sorry, Ben. (laughs) (laughs) So I go through all of those, even like part writing. I'm like, oh, I got a lot of parallel octaves here. I got a lot of parallel fifths here. I'll go through and make a part writing exercise out of all of the errors. And I'll do that for the whole test. I had like um, non-chord tone identification. Some of them got these three wrong, so I put the wrong answer there, and I put it up on the doc cam, and I asked them, okay, here's all the common errors. What's wrong with this? Why is it not this answer? And so we'll go through it. We spent a good 20 minutes doing that this morning in my Theory 2 class, and they were very interactive with me. They're like, oh, that's what I did wrong. I put parallel octaves here. Or they can answer me correctly if I ask what's wrong here, and they're like, oh, it's parallel octaves because I did that. So it's not calling anyone out. And I said, this is not one person that made all of these errors. It's a combination of everybody. (laughs) So they don't think, oh, somebody's really bad at part writing. It's not like that. (laughs) That's really good. Yeah, I've I've been trying to do something similar where I give like more immediate feedback. So like one thing I'm really big on is obviously safe failure. So I allow students to retake a lot of things and Amy's mm-hmm. very familiar with this for retaking key signatures or triads or whatever it happens to be dominant sevenths spelling or and one of uh, one of my former students sent me an article that they just wrote um, um, it's by Mario Wellman and Alexa Silicon if anybody wants to look it up out there if you're out there nerding out with us today look it up <laughs> but it's about when you give feedback and a lot of times if you have feedback that's like a week after you've submitted something it doesn't really process in the same way in your brain as opposed to feedback that you're getting immediately after. So if you take and you spell these triads and you immediately get the feedback, then it's actually sinking in more um, to a deeper level. So I've tried to like do retakes, but then like do them immediately so that you're immediately kind of registering what you missed and then able to spit back out um, kind of a corrected version of that and go through like the error and the correction process like faster, you know, right in the moment. It takes more class time, obviously. I can't just give a speed quiz and then walk out, but I think it's worth it. I'm, I'm betting that it's worth it. As long as you remember to give the speed quiz. <laughs> <laughs> 
Uh oh. Hot take. Hot take. Sorry. I used to be your TA, so. <laughs> you were a Ben Wrangler then, I guess. That's right. <laughs> totally. Totally. And you I welcomed every left. bit of it. <laughs> but I think that brings up such an important thing is that we get so focused on the content and looking at that course schedule and we're in you know we're we're teaching a course that is in a sequence so we've got to cover you know x y and z so that the next class can go to you know a1 b1 you know etc right uh, i wish we would have started early in the alphabet um <laughs> <laughs> but and so we get hung up on this all right well we have the test or we have this quiz you hand it back they see what they did wrong and then you're like well moving on right that's right. what we want to do because we have to get to this next thing but we're missing out on an opportunity to actually um, help students understand this concept better because at the same time you're stacking all this information on top of each other and if they are weak in these lower areas mm -hmm. they're going we of course they're going to be weak in these higher areas we're kind of fooling ourselves to think that they're not and so i love hearing about this mm -hmm. and you know, taking the time in class because that's really important to, so they understand what they've made a mistake on rather than just zooming ahead um, to what's next. I mean, have you seen, Amy, benefits like in students' um, kind of success or achievement or kind of just understanding or grasping of concepts by kind of taking the time in class to uh, go over their mistakes before, on, before launching uh, into new uh, areas? Yes, I feel like I have, especially because I started doing this with their second test and we just had the third test, which I went over today. And I didn't have that many part writing issues compared to the first time before I did the first common errors. So between test two and test three, they figured something good out and um, they already knew the drill because we've done the common errors. So when I put it up there today, they knew we're ready to do this again. Let's find what's going on. And what helps is, I mean, we've talked about before, like as a field, that error detection is great for like ear training classes and for theory. Like if we can find mm -hmm. those parallel fifths and octaves and augmented seconds in a minor key, we're looking for those things. Um, I gave them a little assignment um, in class one day where I said, okay, here's this progression. I want you to part write it. Don't put your name on it because I don't want them to be embarrassed, but I wanted to find a way where they could find all of these errors. So they did the part writing, I collected them. Once everybody was done, I shuffled them up, I handed them back out, and I said, okay, the grader, you can put your name at the bottom. So I put, I purposely put the name blank at the bottom so the grader would put their names. We had the grader do that, and I put a rubric up on the doc cam, and I said, this is what I take two points off for, this is what I take a point off for, this is what I take a half point off for. So they know they not only know how I'm grading their homework, but they also know how I would grade their tests and what I'm looking for. And they're like, you look at this stuff for everybody? And I said, yes. And they said, for everybody? How many of these do you have to do? You have to do this all the time. I'm like, yes. That wasn't the point, but it was really fun because I gave them colored pins and they're grading them. They're like, this is terrible. I never want to be a theorist. I'm like, okay, don't, don't go beyond this. I mean, <laughs> that's not what I was trying to do. But they were grading stuff. They're like, oh, man, you have parallel octaves. Or they're grading somebody else, and they're like, oh, I put the wrong base note there on mine. So mm -hmm. doing that in class, having them realize like what's going on in their own work and then their peers' work, what kind of mistakes are their peers making, that kind of helps solidify how they're doing themselves. Like, oh, they also put parallel octaves. And I thought they were perfect. 
well, not perfect. That was a good music theory joke, but <laughs> I thought they were the perfect <laughs> student, but they also do parallel octaves in their part writing. So it kind of brings everybody a little bit closer together. This is my 8 a.m. class. Like they Oof. are, they're sleepy at first, but we get some activities going and we have a great time. So by doing those common errors together in class before that, once we get to the test, I just put it up there. Because, of course, it's a test. I'm not going to give them copies of it. But they can just look at the screen and see what's going on, what's wrong. What did other people make mistakes on that maybe they didn't make mistakes on? Yeah. That's great. That's really good. It reminds me of this activity I've done a few times for part writing where I put them in groups usually of like four, maybe three or four. And I have them all be at the board in a certain you know part of, i'm lucky because i have these like wrap around staff boards in my room so there's yeah. lots of space to put them up there at the board and then i have i give them a long progression and each student writes one chord so the first student has to you know set it up in open or closed position or whatever and the next student when they get the marker they can either explain to the first student why they are changing something in that chord because it's not going to work or mm -hmm. it made a mistake or something like that, or they can write the next chord. And then, you know, when they get to the end, I come mm -hmm. up and I'm like, okay, there's a problem here and here, see if you can find it and fix it, that kind of thing. But you're right, that immediate feedback makes such a difference. And it's interesting because they love that activity. You know, they, yeah. they always tell me how much they like to be at the board and they like, you know, working as a team. That's something we've heard a lot about this mm -hmm. generation in particular of students is they love collaborative work. Um, that's really good. I've done something like that on paper before, where I had two different papers, but they were the same progression, but they started differently. And I mm. had two of them, and I said, okay, one of you go up, and the other one go up and write the next chord. Then they sit down, next people came up, wrote the next chord, and I called it like part writing telephone, because you know how you would say something <laughs> to somebody, and it ended up being so totally different at the end. If somebody makes a mistake, or they have some kind of leap in their part writing, they're going to end up being in the wrong place at the end. Mm -hmm. So... Then we go back and look at it on the doc cam and see, okay, what's what's wrong here? What happened? Mm -hmm. So yeah, very similar to what's on the board. Yeah, I like, I like that. to yeah. wander around and be like, um, I think that if I were you, I would fix something in that previous chord <laughs> and then just go on to the next crew. <laughs> I'm like, oh, you know, but... look at this again. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I love you said one of the challenges was to come up with an end of class activity. And uh, I went up for full last year, and the one comment that all of my observers made in my class was something to the effect of, you use every single minute, but when class is over, it's just over. You're like, well, it's 9.50. I know I'm in the middle of a sentence, but have a good day. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, that's pretty <laughs> accurate. I teach, like, completely to that last second. Oh, and they all were like, maybe you could take, like, just one minute to sort of, like, review or sum up or have some sort of closing activity so when you said closing activity i was like i need to know what you did mm -hmm. <laughs> um i think well my opening activity that i've done before you can use as a closing activity so i brought a bunch of post-it notes to class one day um, this is in theory one last semester i said the leading tone resolves blank and the seventh resolves blank and so mm -hmm. i said i would say as an exit activity you can't leave until you show me your blank and it's a sticky note in a particular color so they can put it on their notes because i give them handouts every class so they have like folders and notebooks they can um put the sticky note on their notebook or whatever and then um 
the ticket is basically, it's called an exit ticket. So they have to show me what it is that they know. Like, oh, the leading tone resolves up. The seventh has to resolve down. Okay, you're good. Like, that's hypothetically what I would do. I actually did it as an opening activity to kind of get us into a little summary review before we get into the new material for the day. But I think it can work both ways. Mm -hmm. And then if I do it again, maybe I'll use a different color sticky note. So they're like taking those colors into account. Like, oh, when I'm on the test, the yellow one said that the leading tone resolved up and the blue one said that I need to avoid augmented seconds or something. Yeah, That's good. Mm -hmm. You can use that. Not Monday, because I'm giving a test, but Wednesday. Do your common <laughs> errors. Yes. No, I right away was like, that's such a good plan. I'm definitely going to do uh-huh. that. Yeah. 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 Because that, that's that kernel, right? Ben, you always talk about the kernel, right? I love the what, kernel. Of what you know, the takeaway is of that of that class. And, and that's that's the kernel of the day. And they have, they have to recite it back or show you it before they leave. I, I, I love that. I love that. Um, as, as you've been working with this cohort, you mentioned how, you know, they're from, uh, faculty members from all across, uh, the disciplines at the university. Mm-hmm. Um, how have you learned things from faculty from other fields, um, about their teaching? And have you been able to incorporate anything you've learned kind of from anybody from biology or, you know, political science or things like that. Has, has that been helpful for you to kind of think outside of the box in your own teaching at all? Um, I think I've only been able to attend one of the sessions. So they're broken up um, into like teaching and research or research service, those kind of things. And I've missed a couple of them already this semester. So um, the one teaching one that we did, it was right on sticky notes. Um, all of the issues or the excuses you get about, or what was it, for grades, I think? I'm trying to remember what it was. Oh, what are some things that take a lot of time or something? And so we wrote on sticky notes, like grading, that kind of stuff. And they were talking about balance in your research and your work life. And so, like, all of the sticky notes she was reading off, those can apply to everybody in the room, mm-hmm. no matter what your degree or what your yeah. major was. Um, we also did one for grading. I just can't remember exactly what it was about the grading um, that we talked about, but something similar. We talked mm-hmm. about grading and we wrote things down on sticky notes and they ended up being like the same problems. Mm-hmm. Like I don't have enough time to do this or they're all making mistakes like this or, you know, so it was definitely relatable, but I haven't really been able to interact with anybody in a while because all of our schedules are so different like I only see certain people here and there and then Mm -hmm. some of them might not come the days that I come and I don't go the days that they go so Mm -hmm. yeah yeah especially as we're at this point in the semester everyone's kind of just surviving and trying to make it make it to the end right yeah exactly (laughs) yeah I can't even go to the next one (laughs) because I have a music (laughs) thing And so, you know, what, how, how has your, you know, first year uh, on tenure track been, you know, it's, it's, it is a transition from, you know, grad student to, you know, contingent faculty, then you are full time and you have all these other things you have to do, you know, you can't just teach and you have to do scholarship and you also have service. Um, Mm -hmm. So how has that uh, transition been for you? 
Yeah. Actually, I'm non-tenure track, so I have a balance of teaching and service. I don't Mm -hmm. have to do the research, but I am kind of working on that because I feel like research is important Mm -hmm. because Mm -hmm. if you want to teach certain things in your class, like I want to diversify the music that I'm teaching in my class. Like I'm Hispanic. I want to put out more Tejano music, um, mariachi music, that kind of stuff. But there's not a lot of research done on that. So that's on me if I want to bring Mm -hmm. that into my room. I got to make that happen. I got to figure it out. So I am working on something like that right now for research. It's not going to count towards my job in any way, but it will help impact my teaching at some point. Mm -hmm. So that's the kind of the view that I'm taking of it. Mm But yeah, the first year has been a whirlwind so far. The best thing that came out of it, though, after, you know, graduating, not being a student anymore, I'm still at the same place where I was an adjunct. So I know faculty, I know the students, I have, I know the building and everything. But now that some of my time is freed up from being between two universities this whole time, I've been able to play my clarinet and I haven't played in like (laughs) 12 years I'm I'm playing in my first senior recital (laughs) I didn't even play in one when I was an undergrad (laughs) yeah so that's been really good for me playing again is a way to connect with my students because they are so performance focused here Mm. at UTA um, I really just want to connect with them a little bit more. I even had a student in my Theory 2 class, that 8 a.m. class, I'm telling you. <laughs> they said they raised their hand before class. They said, like, it's not a theory question, but can I ask you something? I was like, yeah. She's like, do you tongue at the tip of your reed? <laughs> Claire, she's a clarinet player. Clarinet like, articulation question. You know what? I don't know. I said, I'll play this weekend and I'll let you know. And I finally answered her back because I don't focus on that. That's not my area of expertise. Mm-hmm. But it was a really cool question. And it just made my day to be able to connect to them in a different way besides just mm-hmm. theory. I don't want them to leave here thinking that oh, theory is so boring and it's pointless, whatever. Like, if I can teach theory and still be a performer, then you can be a performer and still like theory and do theory and use it in your careers. Yeah. 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 For sure. Music making is so refreshing. Yeah. I just said before we started recording today that the number one comment I like to give for teaching feedback is, it needs to be less music talking and more music making. <laughs> it seems yeah. to just be a general principle that keeps coming back. And we're all here because we do enjoy music making, ultimately. Yeah. You know? And yes, the theorists of us, we enjoy music talking as well. But overall, when you get in front of a class, it seems like music making is a thing that engages. You know, It gets people doing the thing instead of just talking about doing the thing. And it's just so exciting to to do that you just see students come alive when they're making music it's a really cool thing to see yeah there's a one time i was teeing for ben and he had a whole little jazz combo set up to come play autumn leaves or something if you're talking about sequences yeah it was yeah, autumn amazing. leaves all the things you are anything that has yeah. a falling fist which is like yeah. a lot of the percentage of the real book i don't know it's a yeah. stat that i don't know but there's so many sequences in there it's yeah. easy to have a jazz group come up and play and you can talk about it and how does that affect improvisation? It was just so good because it just kind of brought, changed the monotony of our everyday lives. You know, like, oh, we get a live jazz performance today in theory. Like, mm-hmm. that was just amazing. Yeah. Practice yeah I try to preach. avoid singing in class, <laughs> but I had to the other day. And 
My students are like, oh, Dr. Graf, no, that was so good. That was so good. I said, stop, just, you're just trying to humor me. I'm not going to raise your grade because you're complimenting me on my tone of voice. I know that it's bad. <laughs> yeah, I mean, but I think, I think when students hear us play or sing or something, I mean, that, that, I don't know. It, it connects. It connects with them in a deeper way. Even if you know our singing voice isn't good. I mean, I tell my students, I am paid a lot of things in music to do things in music. I'm paid a lot of like to do a lot of different things. Singing is not one of them, right? <laughs> um, but you know, if they can see that you can sing and you enjoy making music, and, um, and that's that's a way of connecting to them. I remember a student after class because um, I'm a pianist, started talking to me about piano technique and why she's having issues with her, you know, her technique and some like pain in her hand. And I was like, well, if you talk to your <laughs> piano teacher and things like that. Um, <laughs> but, um, but so, I mean, I was able to kind of give her some thoughts and things like that. But I think that's one neat thing that you touched on, Amy, is this kind of connection with the community at your school as, mm. as, as someone who's full-time and you can be there and invested and you're not having to split time between multiple schools or things like that. Um, that is such a, a, a neat part. And you're kind of a part of not just those students' lives in that one hour, right? But you're like, oh, you, you see them at concerts. You can go to their recitals and things like that. Mm-hmm. And you get to see them mature, right, as, you know, 8 o'clock freshmen, right, <laughs> to, you know, to, to graduating and things like that. Um, and so I think that's just, I think that's just such a neat part of um, what we get to do, right? Yeah. Yeah. Currently, um, I'm trying to get them even more involved on my side of things. Um, I'm finally taking Jenny Beaver's initiative and starting a theory club here. And nice. we have our first event yeah. today. Um, our our one graduate student who's about to graduate, Ben and I are on his thesis committee right now. He's going to present to our theory club as part of our first inaugural meeting. And I think <laughs> I'm just really proud of like how that worked out. Like he gets practice at presenting and the theory students get to see something beyond just our basic, here's what this sequence is, here's what this chord is in class. Like they get to see it synthesized into one work. And I think it's something that's gonna really interest them because he talks a little bit more about what's going on in the music and whose voice represents this. And I'm just really excited to get that started. And I took a poll and interestingly enough, like they seem really interested to have like guests talk about their compositions or theory they're excited about um, they're very interested in learning how to teach music theory which i found surprising Hmm. yeah Mm -hmm. so our next session whenever i get that up hopefully this month um, i have a little list for them on what i my basic things for theory pedagogy it's what i teach in my theory pedagogy class Um, the visual audio and kinesthetic Um, I'm going to apply those in a worksheet and like here's how you can learn how do you apply this to music theory what kinds of things do you do part writing for kinesthetic listening to music for audio that kind of thing and then how can we what do we what kind of activities do we want to pull from that to do for these theory topics credential 6-4 non-chord tones that kind of stuff so Mm. I'm really excited to get that going and because 
my load is more geared towards teaching, this is just another way of getting me involved with the students and have them excited and hopefully enroll in some of our theory grad classes because undergrads are allowed to enroll in our grad classes here. So I'm hoping like some of them will be really interested in moving forward beyond the theory sequence. So what, <laughs> what is your student population like at UTA? What are the majors, that kind of thing? Like our majors, one of our mm -hmm. bigger majors right now that we're still trying to build up is music industry studies slash music business. So we're working on building that a little bit in this area. We have, of course, um, you know, performance. We have, um, we don't have a music theory undergrad, but we do have a master's degree. Mm -hmm. So we're always looking for students for that master's degree. We have music ed. We actually offer um, a music ed class um, or music ed degree online, like completely online. Mm. So that way students can teach during the day and then take an online class at night. Um, sometimes it's in per not in person, sometimes it's um, <laughs> synchronous <laughs> or sometimes it's asynchronous. So, but it's uh, all online. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, we have about 435 graduate and undergraduate students in our music department. So it's a, it's a really good size. Yeah. Our ratio mm -hmm. of students for music theory is very metered. <laughs> we start with mm -hmm. 10 for each across the board. And as we start to add more students and they start registering, we bring it up to 15 and we bring it up to 20. So we pretty much typically end up being at a 20 to 1 ratio in our music classes. Mm -hmm. That's pretty good. It's yeah, pretty yeah. good. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Especially yeah. when you have to grade all those things. <laughs> yes. Yes. It's even across the board. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I do remind them of that from time to time. What you did once, I do 16 times. So. Exactly. See? And Stop if they complaining. Do if they do error detection during class, then they'll realize, oh, you have to do all of this. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> all the time. <laughs> right. So yeah, our students are wonderful. They're very hardworking. A lot of them work full-time jobs mm, to wow. help with their families. We have a lot of non-traditional students. Some are married, some have kids, um, some are coming back after a long time. So we try to be flexible. I mean, we do instill time management, but of course things come up and mm -hmm. we're a little bit flexible for that. So we allow that within our attendance policies mm -hmm. for sure. Yeah. yeah, that's good. And then lots of commuters at UT Arlington, right? Yes, yes, mm -hmm. lots of commuters. Yeah. So 8 a.m., you probably get the occasional I'm stuck in traffic message. <laughs> Just, I do. You know. And then I say, oh, that's okay. I teach that same class at 1 o'clock. Why don't you come then? There you go. There you go. <laughs> and they do. I actually got an email this morning. Um, I can't make it on time because I'm in traffic, but can I come to your 1 p.m.? I'm like, yes, you can. Yes, you can. Because I'm going to go over the same thing. I had a student one time that missed my 8.30, theory two. And then I said the same thing you did, Amy. I'll just come at 11 o'clock and teach it again at 11. And then afterwards, they came to office hour and said, I really kind of like the 11 o'clock and then could I just come to your 11 o'clock? And I said, well, yeah, but you also got to come to the 830. For the <laughs> remainder of the term, they came to the 830 and the 11 o'clock theory too. Oh my God. And I said, Whoa. I really appreciated kind of that second time through, really just <laughs> sunk in a little bit more. I thought, wow, I've never had a person in the history of my teaching that has come to an extra 
theory class every time. Wow. Uh, That's like and a, this person extra... is a very talented composer who's going to grad school at, at Bowling Green now, and I, I really am proud of what they've done. And I uh, was just so impressed. I was just so yeah. floored by that, that they would come to the extra class time. That's almost like a compliment to you and your teaching. Like, there, it's so good that they want to see it twice. Uh-huh. <laughs> or, it's, or it's so confusing. Right, right. Yeah, I, was to say, to I, I interpreted it the opposite way, that it wasn't good enough the first time. It required another class period, another 50-minute session. It's okay. I've been your witness. I think it's the first one. <laughs> I appreciate that. <laughs> so, you know, as... As one thing I always like to to ask is um, how how much do you feel like you were you were prepared in your graduate work for the mm-hmm. um, for the job of being a theory professor because mm-hmm. you know so much of our graduate work is um, is research and studying particular things and uh, shout out to Bowling Green State University that's where I got my master's in composition so he's going to do great um, but I was thinking about my my degrees most of my graduate degrees are in composition I never took one class in composition pedagogy not one I did take two theory pedagogy classes at UNT um, but how do you feel like you were prepared for the actual job that you're in with your graduate work and not to call out any, any names or anything like that, but like, how do you feel? Yeah. Um, I don't think my theory pedagogy classes that I took were super relevant. Some of them were, I actually took two theory pedagogy classes. The second one that I took was very relevant because we did do textbook reviews and talked about like, let's compare how this textbook compares to this textbook. So textbooks are really important for if you're choosing it. But if you come to a university where it already is established with a textbook, then you pretty much just have to deal with what you have, (laughs) whether you like it or not. Right. Luckily, I like mine. So (laughs) it worked out just fine. But um yeah, it's, uh, I feel like it is more research heavy. We're constantly writing papers in grad school. Um, we don't really do any kind of surface either. So it didn't really prepare you for the service aspect of it, like working with other people. Mm-hmm. Not that I had that, didn't have that problem. I think like maybe going to conferences was helpful, like, because you can network with people and talk to people. It would be the same thing if you're talking to people like in your own department or your own school of music. But for theory pedagogy, I kind of, this is going to sound really strange. This is my secret. Aside from watching Ben and observing Ben, I did steal the handout idea from him. And I did steal, you know, like, let's do that class activity at the end. Um, But I became like a certified group exercise instructor in 2019. So that's about the time I started writing my dissertation. That helped me get through it. Uh (laughs) Um, So in that certification, it's a whole weekend. I actually missed TSMT to go to it. (laughs) 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 And um, I had to. It was only that weekend. I had to be there 100%. So the main things that they talked about in that is what I just mentioned earlier. You have visual learners. You have audio learners. You have kinesthetic. And when we're doing exercises 
for this class. It's all pre-choreographed, so I have to learn the choreography. I have to do it with them. I have to give verbal cues, and I have to show them what I'm doing. I show them the wrong way, which is like error detection, and I show them the right way to do it. If we're doing a deadlift, you don't want to hunch your shoulders over and round out your back. You want to keep the shoulders back and you want to stay nice and straight. So that's those are kind of the verbal cues, which on a podcast, you can only get the verbal cues. <laughs> but hopefully you're able to picture that, right? Because of the verbal cues. And that's where I got most of my theory pedagogy from. I'm like, this could apply to theory. It's a future paper of mine. I just haven't really sorted it all out, how it could relate to exercise. Because we move in music, we talk in music, we sing, we play things, um, and we listen to things. It's very similar to the exercise industry as well. And so I took what I knew about that, and I also took... Um, what I had for my composition, not my composition, my, um, my comps exams in, at UNT with my dissertation advisor, Dr. Ellen Bacolina. And I remember specifically when I went in to defend my theory pedagogy section, she's like, well, how would you teach that? And I said, well, I need to show them this and I need, which was like, well, maybe I shouldn't give it away in case they're listening. Um, <laughs> unless the answers have changed. Um, I'd show them this. I would demonstrate this. I would play this. She's like, good, because you need all three of those aspects. And that clicked for me. Like, oh, in exercise, we have those three things, visual, audio, kinesthetic. She's mentioning to me the same things that I had just told her. And so I found that connection in music theory. And that's essentially what has prepared me for teaching here. It's given me, I mean, I said AQ gave me confidence. Teaching in front of a bunch of random people that I don't know who I'm going to get every single time in an exercise class, that has prepared me for different people coming in and out of my classroom. L the luxury here is that I get to keep the, um, the same people in every class here, but I don't know what I'm going to get in an exercise classroom. I don't know if I'm going to get somebody new that doesn't know the moves and I have to keep mm -hmm. teaching them and I have to be more specific because they don't know what's going on. So I take that in my classrooms too. If I have a student that missed last time, like this past time, he sent me a picture of him with his flat tire and a thumbs up <laughs> <laughs> and he, he missed learning about OPCI and UPCI in theory four and so I was talking and like reviewing with the class and he just looked so confused and so I was I took it back a little bit and I went back to explaining it very detailed like he is one of my one of the people that came into my exercise class that's never taken that class before I explained it very specifically this is what you do here this is what you do there and then when I had them work by themselves, I went up to him again and said, how are you supposed to do OPCI? And I had him tell me, how are you supposed to do UPCI? And I had him tell me. And so then he worked on a problem by himself. He got it right. I'm like, there you go. So it was like just a quick little mini lesson to help catch him up. I know you can't do that with everybody, especially if you have over 100 students in your class. But you do that when they come to your office hours, too. You help catch them up. And so all of those things are really important um, for theory pedagogy. It just really relates back to group exercise for me. That's really cool. I think it works the other way too. I often will give what I call like a flex. So um, I'll put a bunch of questions on the board they're supposed to answer. And then one of them I'll put stars by and be like, that's the flex. So if you're struggling, skip that one. 
if you're oh, if yeah. these feel easy for you, do these couple that are kind of harder, right? Um, just to see what happens, yeah. you know. And some of them are like, I never do the flex. I'm like, that's fine, <laughs> you know, <laughs> that's okay. Um, yeah. <clears throat> but yeah, it works both ways. Sometimes you gotta, you know, catch that kid who missed something, and sometimes you gotta catch that kid who's like, I've mm-hmm. been doing this since AP theory in high school, and you know, I'm trying to find the nugget that's new. So yeah. I like that you tie, like you name it flex (laughs) so they know exactly what you're talking about. Like that's some kind of correspondence, a connection that you build with your students. Yeah. That's awesome. I think there needs to be a Ben Graff and Amy Hatch exercising, um, uh, workout (laughs) session, uh, the morning of TSMT, you know, like seven (laughs) o'clock Dr. Hatch and Graff, you work out your, do some cardio and then you can, work out your brain later on and they can yoga or something yeah they can run with ben and then lift weights with me (laughs) that's true definitely more of a cardio guy no matter how much i work out i don't gain hey that's funny i work out and i don't lose (laughs) (laughs) genetics are a huge factor yeah Mm -hmm. Well, this has been a treat uh, to chat with you and uh, to hear about all your successes um, at UT Arlington. And so before we, we go, though, we like to do a little rapid fire. Um, it's, it's like a mini comps, right? That's kind of what it is, right? We just, oh, you don't no. know what's going to come, right? No, it's not that stressful. <laughs> a little less, lot less stressful. <laughs> Low stakes. Um, okay. And so just uh, you're just you know, hot take on whatever you know, we ask. Jen or Ben, do you have a question off the top? I do. I'm ready. Okay, go for it. Um, so what is a Tejano or Mariachi piece that you have used in class, if you've used one? Yes, I have, actually. Just a second. Um, actually, I used uh, No Me Queda Mas by Selena. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, so that's a great way to get them looking. There's no written music. It's just lyrics with the pop chord symbols above it. And that had an example of a minor three, and it had like six going to three. So I had them listen to it and follow along with the lyrics, place themselves in a key, which we had to figure out what was the key? What do we keep going to? What feels like a five? Because sometimes there'd be a seven on there. I'm like, does that feel like a five, seven? How can we figure out the key? Once we figure out a key, then I have them listen to it, follow along, and I want them to think about what the Roman numerals are as they're going through it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's good. That's great. That's awesome. My question was going to be, what is your favorite level of theory to teach? <sighs> oh, no. Well, I'm like 100% happy right now because I have two and four, but I guess I would have to choose four because I love blowing their minds when we start putting numbers on on notes and I put them on 12 up there. I feel like I have the most amount of ideas for that class. I could be super creative with that one. I put like sticky notes up on the board, like those reusable ones. So I put zero through 11 and then I put all of them in the note names. So I put them up before class, they can look at them. And when I ask them like, what's the distance from one to seven and they can look at the clock six, like it's super easy and it helps them keep that in their minds. And then of course I added the Dyson this year so we could practice like normal form like quickly. So I really like that I can be creative in that class. And I just, 
20th century music is my specialty, so I just have a ball. And I feel like some of the students that don't get tonal harmony as quickly, they were answering so fast today. Like, they're getting this, and that just makes me really happy. Like, they found their niche. Yeah. Yeah, that's cool. Totally, totally. Once they learn that they can write parallel fifths, they're like, I'm in. I'm in. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, my, my question is, what is your favorite um, kinesthetic activity in theory or oral skills? Hmm. Um, so I would say <laughs> kinesthetic, besides just like, taking them through part writing and asking them, okay, what do you want to put in the tenor? What do you want to put in the alto? And having them write along with me, I would say like games. Um, I've been doing like cahoots as test reviews lately. Some of those are really hard to put in cahoots, but I put like examples up there and they see the colors and they are able to answer like on their phones. Mm -hmm. You know, they love to use their phones. So like, let's, let's Mm -hmm. do it. Let's make a good use out of it. So they get to like tap on the right answer. I've done games in theory one, like heads up. I didn't get to it last semester, but I did it last year where I put like dominant seventh chord on it and they have to hold it up and the other (laughs) students have to explain it to them. Oh, I love that. And then they have to guess what it is. So I think that would be the most kinesthetic besides just like your day-to-day mm-hmm. part writing. Because to me, part writing is pretty kinesthetic. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, I've, I've used some cahoots for kind of review and things like that. And students mm-hmm. enjoy it generally. Um, and they then do. the last, I did it a couple of weeks ago and they all signed in as Dr. Thomas. Uh, <laughs> 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 and oh so, gosh. yeah, so all of them were Dr. Thomas um, in there. Oh, so I can I see mine doing winning. that except for Mr. Theory Man. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> Mr. Theory Man's my funny. caricature that I use That's in right. class. Yeah. <laughs> for those that don't know. Oh, I remember. So as we wrap up, uh, maybe you could let our listeners know a little bit about how um, uh, they can find you online mm-hmm. if, they, if you want to be found. Um, sure. And uh, what kind of things are you working on maybe uh, over the summer or maybe next year? Yeah, that's great. Um, I'm currently working on that book chapter again for it's like a digital book that's going to come out about conjunto music. And mine is the only theory article in there because there's no mm-hmm. theory articles that I found that talk about this subject since it's not written down. I'm also, I've also been working on lots of short little concept videos for music theory. Um, I made like 10 videos in the last five days. <laughs> it's been back to back to back. Um, that way I could just say, they could just pull it up on YouTube or TikTok and they can find like, oh, I need a review of arpeggiated six, four chords, either this semester or for whenever they do their proficiency exam later down the road, they can go back and look at it. And hopefully it's, it's not like analysis, like, you know, it's just showing them all the details, how to get there. And then it'll hopefully just be more of a refresher for them. Um, so I've been working on those. I'm going to continue working on theory club and restructuring some of my syllabi because, um, as talked about in the AQ module, um, one of our last modules was about liquid syllabi. So that would be when you put it online and that way they have mobile access to it. Um, 
It was said in the AQ module. I don't remember what the source was for it. Um, I can get that information to you later if you'd like. But they said that um, research has shown that Hispanic and black students typically use their phones more than any other devices. So if we can make a liquid syllabi, something that's mobile friendly, that they can go and say, oh, here's the course schedule there, here's all of the attendance information, grading information that's on their phones, then they'll be more successful and more inclusive in that class. There's, it's a syllabi equity, I believe. So I'm going to try working on that for at least one of my classes next semester and see how that goes. Of course, I'll do the regular paper syllabus that I have to upload, but I'm going to start working on those as well and then continue working on getting some theory club stuff together for the fall and really honing it in for next year. You can contact me um, at uh, my email, uh, Amy Hatch, amy.hatch at UTA. I also have um, a YouTube channel that I've just gone public on. It's at Dr. Hatch Music Theory, all lowercase, no spaces, and on TikTok too. I'm not going to follow you back though, but <laughs> it's my professional <laughs> account at Dr. Hatch 8, and that's where I post all of my videos for, that's what I use to post my videos for theory topics. You just made it to the end of another episode of Note Doctors, the music theory and pedagogy podcast. Don't forget to like, subscribe, and review the podcast, and you can always reach us at notedoctorspodcast at gmail.com with comments, questions, or show ideas. Thanks for listening.